0: Hi everyone, welcome to New Books Network in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupanna Padkiri. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Gurpinder Singh Lalli. He is a reader in education for social justice and inclusion based in the School of Education at the University of Wolverhampton. Gurpinder has a vested interest in the sociology of education and in food insecurity, social justice, and he is the author of Schools, Food and Social Learning, published in 2019, and the co lead editor of School Farms, Feeding and Education Educating Children, published in 2021. His recent book, Schools, Space and Culinary Capital, has been published by Rutledge in 2022, and it is this book that we will be discussing in today's podcast. I'm extremely glad to have you here today. Welcome to this interview.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me.
0: So, uh, let me begin by asking you a very fundamental question. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your motivation behind, you know, writing this book?
1: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll say, um, I'll say, there's a couple of things. Sorry, excuse me. There's a couple of Um First of all, following the funding that I've received from. The British Educational Studies Association. I one of them. One of my key outputs was to produce uh, a research monograph from that research project, and actually, the other reason is because I, f- I feel much more able to write freely in in books than I do in journal articles. There is more space to write and develop ideas, um, and you know to be able to delve in much more deeply. Into the ideas around culinary capital, essentially. And that was my main motivation for, for writing the book.
0: All right. OK. So, uh, could you also talk about the main methods that you have used in this work? And, you know, where is this book located in terms of its setting and context?
1: Absolutely. So, broadly speaking, I used ethnographic techniques, qualitative methods including interviews and observations um, to, to conduct a study that was based in the uk and, and the research data consists consisted of these interviews that were conducted with children uh, teachers and school staff and also the, the school dining hall was the central focus um, in terms of where data was being collected in terms of participants observations and kind of collection of visuals and using field notes um, to, to kind of to capture all that,
0: right? So you drawn the notion of the culinary capital to frame some of the processes which shape, you know, school meal time. So uh, how do you see school food intersecting with this notion of the culinary capital?
1: yeah so the, essentially uh, uh, the book introduces the notion of culinary capital to investigate socialization and school mealtime experiences in one Academy School based in the UK. Um, I mean, whilst forms of culinary capital have been discussed in public discourse such as social media, it's not being discussed at length in a school-based context, and the research ultimately aimed to highlight how forms of culinary capital, be extended in the school dining hall but also debating the processes of socialization and how they are set to kind of interfere. So the, the book essentially uses this idea of culinary capital to frame a discussion on school meals and you know the use of gender, class and race also to understand have you know the importance food has and it hasn't been considered at length in the context of the school food space. In terms of the ways in which children are socialized in the everyday, so I'm interested in that consumption. And and the idea that, the, you know, these ideas that the book um, kind of delves into further is on food education and potential links between educational attainment and more broadly the sensory impact of school gardens even, you know, which extends beyond the school gates actually or the school dining hall, should I say. And that the book kind of... Begins to to, to move towards an argument that the school dining space and hall and and food education is a space in curriculum um, and beyond where culinary capital can be learnt.
0: Right. So, uh, you know, uh, can you explain how you use the term culinary capital in perhaps a little more detail? For you know our listeners who may not be that familiar with the concept,
1: absolutely. So this idea of culinary capital um, is it's kind of it plays on this idea of what we what we know as social and cultural capital, which is originally introduced by uh, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, um, and this idea that we can acquire knowledge. And we can advance our social position um, through kind of forms of cultural capital, which is more so. We, we can argue the argument is that we were born with this kind of cultural capital that we inhabit with us. Um, so coming from affluence, for ex- coming from affluence, for example, would involve being able to continue within that line and, and that pathway of of affluence. Um, and then but the social capital side of things is where your network extends and you know new spaces you enter where you, you develop a newer network and it, and the culinary capital there plays in into such conversations and discourses because when you think of children and the, the way they're socialized, you know think about the holidays they might go on and the foods they taste and experience. you know that kind of connects them to certain certain groups. Uh, certain people, where they're, they're able to extend those discussions further and make those connections, and, and and it's a space where some children from families who may not have come from such so affluent backgrounds or such affluent backgrounds may find themselves quickly excluded, um, and and this is the kind of idea that actually school is a powerful space for equipping children, you know, to creating a more equitable. Uh, society. where Everybody has the opportunity to try different foods, and you know, do so in through school. There are certain children may not be able to travel. You know, may not have the money. The families may not have the money to travel overseas to go and try more authentic foods in their natural spaces and habitats. So that's kind of, you know, how i have tried to be. I've been grappling with this idea of culinary capital.
0: Right. Uh, Very interesting. So, uh, you know, if you could also uh, speak a little bit about how food itself is used as a vehicle for socialization and the role that class plays in it, as well as how do you think, you know, cultural appropriation impinges upon etiquettes and manners? Because in the previous answer, you briefly sort of, you know, allude to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again um just to kind of re-emphasize this point on, on on culinary capital then you know what i tend to do is a draw on cultural capital which is acquired through education and socialization which includes the distinctive forms of knowledge and ability that students acquire from their training in the cultural disciplines right so food practices essentially play, play a unique role as markers of social status. Um, which was coined by Nakarato and Lebesco. Um, so if socialization is to be used as a theoretical frame, the social and historical origins need to be included as part of the framework. And for this reason you know the seminal work of Elias is particularly relevant. Uh, Norbert Elias um, who explores the history of etiquette. You know Elias was particularly interested in human interactions and, and the formations of power relations. That were being related to behaviour patterns and bodily processes. And obviously, the assumptions of my work suggest or may suggest that school meal time is able to foster a forum for developing such culinary capital. But what I tend to argue here is that it's not a simple process. It's about the evolution of the modern day citizen. Um, again, what Norbert Elias kind of refers to it's about preparing and training citizens for the future to survive in society. We need to learn to get on with those around us, to be able to develop competence in networking and negotiating within certain spaces. So that's what I mean there by how food can act, you know, become be used as a vehicle for establishing positive or good patterns of socialization.
0: All right. You also talked about the relationship of the school meal with issues of race and gender. So, uh, how are the school meals interconnected with these issues, particularly in the context of the UK?
1: Yeah, so I mean, look, eating differs amongst amongst girls, boys, and it's interesting to observe whether you know women and men are involved in in feeding practices in schools, and in which, if so, in which ways. And during my time conducting research on the school food space for a number of years now, I I particularly observe more kind of. I would say women preparing and serving food and the, the lunchtime supervisors, lunchtime supervisors tend to be mainly women, um, you know. So why are lunchtime supervisors typically parents to the children's school some of the questions I asked. Why do girls tend to sit with girls more frequently and boys with boys during mealtime? And research on eating behaviors is growing and in the, in the context in which the research is carried out is also critical. To, to, to interpreting such discourse. So, in, in the deprived area of, a, of, of the Midlands, which is in central England, we also cannot think about food and gender without paying attention to the division of labour, right? And how such roles impinge upon modes of production and, and reproduction throughout society. You know, research on food is, a, is, is kind of tends to be dominated by, um, by, by, by women researchers essentially. Um, and, you know and I think that's really interesting in itself as an observation. So a school is a microcosm of society and, and primary socialization is then transmitted through the school food space and gender and consumption are said to alter and affect each other in, in unexpected ways. And the narrative around food consumption consumption essentially centers on human, human embodiment. So you know we see these uh, plenty of examples of this. Um, in, in that primary socialisation, in particular, in children. you know, Why do children of colour sit together? You know, why are social divisions in the school dining hall so consistent throughout the globe? Even though school lunches are staggered, um, in, in the UK in particular, the lunch break in terms of timings, why do children only spend time with their peers and not others in younger or older year groups? Um, you know, One of the reasons, of course, logistically, is because they're, they're, they're grouped with them. But very little research has been done on school food and race in the UK, though, so it's very difficult to kind of make early observations of that. But whilst efforts to improve school lunches and food justice have occurred, these tend to stem from non-educators outside of school. And what we're seeing is, if you think of the food being served, there's a, there is a real lack of diversity um, in terms of the options available. So you think of newly newly arrived migrants, um, you know, we talk about etiquette and eating with knives and forks, but that, that may not be common cultural practice within their You know, within their cultures, and, and we cannot neglect that, and we cannot kind of teach that. You know, eating with a knife and fork, if you like, is is how you eat properly in inverted commas. So that those kind of class-based ideologies um, are, are ways in which school food policy is very much classed, gendered, and racialized. Um, And it's an area I continue to become interested in. Um, And, you know, so uh, the school mealtime is just another space in society where gender norms are reproduced, where race inequality is exacerbated, and where examples of class and cultural capital are very dominant,
0: Right. So uh, in one of your previous answers, you mentioned that you used mostly ethnographic techniques. Uh, This question came to me because you uh, locate your work in a sensitive space like a school where there are children. And of course, you're working on something like food. So uh, as an ethnographer, was there any interesting you know, um, anecdote that you can tell us about from the field or challenges that you faced because you were researching on children?
1: Yeah, as an ethnographer, I think one of the, one of the, one of the problems I had and always do have when I work in schools is that I used to be a teacher myself. I used to work in schools um, with hard-to-reach young people and those in this, you know, who experience disadvantage. And it's often difficult to try and separate my identity as a teacher to that of me as a researcher. And doing ethnography involves, to an extent, to try and strip a lot of that away. Um, you know, you're supposed to become a participant observer. You know, so uh, I, sent, I spent time with the children, I ate with the children, but ultimately, this kind of adult relationship to mealtime as opposed to your child relationship to mealtime meant I felt excluded, right? I could not see through the eyes of the children, yeah? Because as a young person myself who experienced school mealtime, that was, you know, that, that was, you have to infer time and place, whereas research then today needs to be thought of as and, and interpreted as relevant to what is going on in school dining halls today for example so thats some of the, that's one of the challenges. Um, another challenge I would say is you know the ways in which we might find ways to try and make sense of the, of the rich data sets and the, the time spent and come up with recommendations that are going to be easily operational or operationalized in the day-to-day. For Policymakers, um, you know, what, what does all this research mean? How does it help children? So that's always something in the back of my mind when I'm doing research, um, to try and keep that in you know, keep in mind that look, here, here are a set of rich ethnographic accounts of case study work in schools, but how, how can we then move this forward? And how, how representative is that of school? And mealtime across the UK in particular, and um, you know, and how can I? What other channels can I tap into to try and support and improve school food policy?
0: Right. So, uh, again, uh, I want to know from you uh, what is meant by taste education, and how is this interpreted today?
1: Yeah. So, taste education then. These are lessons based on the Sapro method, which has been used with great success in many European countries for decades. Taste education is food education, pared down to its simplest form, but the impact on the children relate to, you know, this impact on children can be huge. Um, I'm a trustee of this food-based education charity known as Taste Ed, and we're aiming to essentially revolutionise the way food education is taught in the UK. So the taste education becomes a basic aspect of every child's knowledge. Just as children are taught how to read and write, they need to learn the food literacy that will help them become more confident, adventurous, and healthy eaters. So this is very much one of the examples of how I see my work transcending into, into the everyday and we currently have 700 schools signed up to Taste Education and we offer training to teachers. Um, and, you know, in, and we're tapping into that real sensory aspect of, of, of food in school and try to embed food literacy across curriculum.
0: Right. So, uh, you know, how can the school meal be used to make uh, policy recommendations or can it be used to make them?
1: Yeah, I think it certainly can. Um, otherwise, what are we doing here, you know, that's just that's my view. Um, so for, for, it can do so in four ways, you know, to provide families with cash instead of vouchers where they might be needed. So let's say we have a pandemic again. In terms of a contingency plan, we cannot afford to rely on vouchers where families, you know, the evidence found from a recent project that I've conducted that families would go to the... To, Go to shops, um, put their foods in the trolleys and baskets. Go to the checkout to pay, and only to find out that the vouchers weren't eligible, and they'd have to go and put that food back. So the stigma that arises from that, and the, you know, the trauma that, that you know that has on, on families, you know, that needs to be taken into consideration. So cash incentives for families who are who are in need at those times when you know those crucial times. Secondly to focus on food more broadly in the curriculum in terms of education policy you know we tap into food across subject areas and we can do that and we can continue to do that talk about the history of food talk about the science of food you know talk about food literacy we use food in math we use food in geography you know we use food in business in terms of procurement so it's kind of like food is everywhere right and it's a it's a great way to tap into uh, teaching children life skills. Thirdly, to focus on co-creation, co-construction, when designing school dining halls and, and with food choices in mind. So ask the kids, you know, the, they are the customers, if you like. They are the individuals who are going to be using the space to eat and to spend time there. So why don't we work more closely with children, which we're beginning to do. Um, but that needs to continue and it needs to be driven from the very beginning of the process. Fourthly, to focus on supporting schools to recognize the impact of dining spaces that actually a lot of schools are now s- struggling with space. So the school dining halls are um, becoming smaller and smaller. And that's that's becoming a problem in terms of socialization. Um, you know, but Yes, we have play- playground areas and breakout spaces. But if children haven't got space to eat and spend time there to socialise, then you know these kind of these soft skills that could be developed um, and social social skills that could be developed during a crucial time of the day. You know that they're being missed, right? Those opportunities could be fostered, you know, through food in the everyday in, in school life.
0: Last question: What do you think is the scope of research? You know, in this particular area.
1: Yeah. So did you say? Did you say scope? Sorry.
0: Yeah, I said. Uh, I mean, you know, what would be the future scope of research in okay. this particular area?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can um, I can tell you about a, I can tell you about a project that we are recently about to start, right. or where we're about to start um which is looking at a historically-informed sociological study on the school meal service. So we're we're going to be looking and delving into archival records from 1906, from where the the school meal service was first introduced in the UK, to the present day, and lessons that could be learned, how those those could feed into policymaking. and essentially, also doing ethnography across nations in the UK, so we can look at how they differ and lessons that could be learned. Again, and looking at life, social life histories. So the scope is absolutely huge. This is one of the projects. Another project I am um, involved in is an intervention, um, you know, to, to help fostering better eating habits and taking bringing a sociological stance on that, alongside colleagues who are. You know, I have expert knowledge in nutrition and epidemiology so and public health. So the scope is huge. And the scope, what I mean by that, just to clarify is that, you know building that evidence base and continuing to do that is crucial to, in order to get the voices of children heard and in order to, to, to create a more equitable future um, for children. And, and, and grandchildren and you know and, and the other thing that's quite crucial is that if we invest now we can save a lot of money later on down the line um you know to reduce health problems so you know if we're fostering good eating habits that that will have positive you know benefits for the future and it's just trying to track that in a longitudinal way which, which needs to be you know which could be would be much more beneficial in order to convince um, policymakers to, to, to take these decisions on board and try and universalize free school meals for all from primary through to secondary education in the UK.
0: Well, thank you for answering my question so well and good luck with the project. On that note, we come to an end of the conversation and I would like to thank you for giving us your time and effort. So thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me and it's been a a real positive experience and I kind of look forward to kind of keeping in, in close contact and sharing updates about the project. Thank you. Thank you so
0: much.